Well, we are following this breaking news out of South Carolina. Alec Murdoch found guilty on all four counts of murdering his son, Paul Murdoch, who was 22 years old, and his wife, Maggie, who was 52 years old. Let's bring in our Nikki Batiste, who has been covering this trial since the beginning and is at the courthouse in Walterboro, South Carolina. Nikki, boy, this uh, jury did not take long to deliberate and find him guilty. No, Nora, and honestly, the reaction around here was shock. Everyone started running to the courtroom, and we heard there was a verdict after just three hours of deliberations. There were five women and seven men on this jury. I've been watching Alec Murdahl as the verdict has been read, and he's had virtually no reaction at all. He looked down at the ground a little bit. I'm also watching his surviving son, Buster Murdahl, who testified for the defense. He also is just looking straight ahead. This was a case that the prosecution reiterated over and over over again that Alec Murdahl is a liar. He lied about whether or not he was near the crime scene just before the murders. And then he said on the stand that he was, that he'd lied for a decade about financial crimes. He'd lied about an opioid addiction to his friends and his family. The prosecution also created a timeline of his day on the day of the murders from cell phone evidence. And you could see that he was there at the crime scene within minutes of the murders of his wife, Maggie, and his 22-year-old son, Paul. Nora? Nikki Batiste, thank you so much. Let's bring in CBS News legal analyst Jessica Levinson, who has been following this trial gavel to gavel. And Jessica, so good to have you. You probably followed it a lot closer than I did, but my understanding, there was no murder weapon, there were no witnesses, so they tried, the defense tried to create reasonable doubts. But what about his testimony on the stand? Did that hurt him? I think it absolutely did. And I think what we saw is the fact that he took the stand meant that the defense knew that they had to throw a Hail Mary pass. They knew they were losing. He took the stand. And I think what was really deadly to him is something that Nikki just zeroed in on, which is they just didn't believe him. He on the stand had to admit that he had lied for 20 months about not being at the murder scene. He had to admit that only after witness after witness located him at the murder scene right before the murders. And I think that was just the death knell for him because he lost all credibility in front of the jury. And let's also remember, this is a jury that heard about his purported financial crimes. They already saw him as a bad actor. Then they saw him as a liar as well. Nikki Batiste, I mean, this is a trial that has captured national attention. There are, you know, there are specials, uh, streaming specials already on this because of what this family, the prominence of this family in South Carolina, Carolina and some of the other mysterious murders. These are not the only crimes he's accused of, correct? guilty if the evidence no, Alec Murdaugh has been charged in a few financial crimes, but he faces about 99 more charges in a variety of crimes. There's one incident that I want to tell you about. In 2018, the Murdaugh housekeeper had an accidental fall and died. At her funeral, Alec Murdaugh suggested to her sons that they sue him because she fell at his house. They did. Alec Murdaugh's insurance company paid out a $4 million settlement. Alec Murdaugh took every dime. There's an example of the kind of financial fraud that he is that he has conducted in the last decade. And I want to add that regardless of this verdict, we now know he's guilty. He'll face 30 years to life in prison. We're expecting the judge to sentence fairly quickly, but he will still be tried on those financial crimes if he's convicted of all of them, some of which he's already admitted to on the stand. He could face an additional life sentence for them. Nora. Nikki Batiste, thank you for your excellent coverage of this trial. And so just to recap, Alec Murdoch found guilty of all four charges for the killings in 2021 of his 22-year-old son and his 52-year-old wife. Well, now Alec Murdoch facing 30 years to life in prison. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. And today I have a very special guest. Please, Mandy, introduce yourself. 
Hi, I am Mandy Matney, creator of the Murdoch Murders podcast and now known as the True Sunlight podcast. And I'm also a co-host on Cup of Justice. (laughs) Um, And I'm a journalist and I have been investigating the Murdoch family for more than four years now. What an incredible journey you've been on. And, you know, I just want to open by saying, I don't know if any of Alec Murdoch's murderous and exploitative and despicable behavior would have been exposed fully without you. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And um, it's a weird thing for me to to say, because I think that kind of puts a target on my back a little bit. <laughs> Um, it's a scary because he was, he's a terrifying person and I'm just glad all of this has come to light. It's been a long time coming and we still have victims who need justice and we still have cases that need to be solved. Absolutely. And I hear you when you say that he is a dangerous individual, because I think oftentimes people might see these cases, particularly in the true crime world, and just think that it's something that's entertaining. And it really concerns me when people think that, particularly when you're living it, breathing it, exposing the behavior. And this was a really powerful family. And I think from my own deep dives, but also from listening to you, that can be missed in the national headlines. And with talking heads, speaking about the case, which is what I saw throughout the trial, you live it, you breathe it. This is your locality. You know all the people. And so it has a different gravitas and sense for you that this was somebody who was incredibly powerful, incredibly wealthy, privileged, very deep pockets and very controlling in his behavior and would not stop trying to control the narrative and all the people around him and those trying to expose him. So I can imagine for you at times, it has been a very scary place. Yeah, it has been. And I know that we relate on the fact that both of us can really see this scary trend in true crime where Creators are so detached from the victims and from the actual story, and they use it as something to laugh at and something to be entertained by. And given I will be the first to admit that I've had to laugh in the last couple of years of some of the absurdity that's gone on in this case. However, you always have to put the victims first and you always have to really view them as not a character and like this mystery. I just could not believe that in the last few years, the amount of people who have just, who talk about these people involved, like it has, like their words have no consequences. And like, they're not talking about real people who have lives outside of the story and are attached to this by no choice of their own. And that's been a really depressing thing, honestly, to witness over and over again, just how inhumane people online can be about these crimes. And true crime has its pros and negatives. Um, It's really great. Like you said, I, I don't think that everything would have happened the way that it did if this case didn't have the international exposure like it did. So the international exposure in the true crime community in that case was a positive thing. But then on the flip side, the the harassment that victims dealt with, the accusations that were just so baseless that I saw over and over again. And yeah, I mean, we have not made the connections completely, but we've seen some we call them troll armies, especially during the trial that seemed to come from some PR machine, possibly related to the family, because otherwise I have no idea why there would be hundreds of accounts online saying pro-Alex things during the trial. It was just, it was very, very weird and shocked me. Well, nothing shocks me anymore in the the work that I do, I have to say. And having worked on some of these cases and that there's no end that the perpetrator won't go to, to ensure that they can control the narrative. And the victims are 
just collateral in all of that. And there can be multiple victims around the primary victims as well, those reporting on the case. You know, and that's the thing. It's it's extensive when someone has a scorched the earth mentality and they are determined to control the narrative and when everything is at stake for them. And I think that's what people misunderstand with a case like this. You have many victims. I mean, even to have so many victims within your orbit in six years, that's unheard of. I mean, it's unprecedented in the sense that Mallory Beach, that case happens and almost from there, everything starts to unravel. And then there's this absolute, I won't use the word frenzied, but there's a very controlled set of behaviours, this web. It's like a spider's web that you've been uncovering. And I call it a spider's web because coercive controllers operate in that way. They have multiple people they call upon and can enable and leverage to do their bidding. And that's why you've been putting the sunlight on various aspects of that or various, you know, it's like tentacles of the spider web. Some of them glisten in the sunlight and others are invisible. And you've really been uncovering lots of different enablers across the many years that this has been going on in your locality. That's why it's so frightening when you have someone like Alec Murdoch, who just the name alone, let alone the fact that you're a lawyer, where your word is just taken as being good and there's no questioning or challenging or corroborating. And therefore, he felt he was untouchable. And not just he felt it, he believed it and he lived it every day that he would just say something and that would be accepted. And all the while you've been challenging that and asking questions about that and centering the victims, which I just want to thank you so much for doing that, ensuring that the victims have voices and have a platform. And I straight away with this case observed that with Maggie and Paul, it was like Maggie was being written out the narrative all the time. People kept talking about Paul and saying, well, I just can't believe that he would do that to his son. And that's what they were indignant and outraged about. They weren't concerned about Maggie because, you know, women just get killed by men and we should just accept that. It was Paul that they attached some value to. And even that talks about the misogyny, the patriarchy, the things that support Alec Murdoch in in what he's done. It's a silent enabling, but it's also a larger narrative once you talk about the media and others reporting on the case that Maggie could have become invisible. And that really bothered me right from the start. And that was really my entry point. I mean, you've been living this and breathing this for a very long time and covering breaking news. And I I just have to say, well done, because I've been living and breathing this for some time now, for, for months, and it inhabits my mental space day and night because there are just so many rabbit holes to go down and things to uncover And when you're breaking news on it, that's a huge pressure as well, that you are trying to ensure that people know the truth because there's been a lot of faux narrative. But you're doing this, you know, across four years of your life that must have just been absorbing all your time, just your waking time, your sleep time. How did you balance that with your own life and obviously your relationship as well? Was there any room for that? Because I hear that you got married and lots of things were going on that were big events in your own life, but you seem to have been covering this case like 24-7. About a year and a half ago, so beginning of 2022, mid-2022, I really... Like you said, this case just takes up so much of your mental space. And a lot of it is just very, very dark. And I just got to a point, not only thinking about that all the time, but then, like you said, covering breaking news and constantly just feeling like I have to be attached to my computer, constantly feeling like I have to defend my work online, constantly feeling like I have to be doing a million things at, at one time. And I really took a step back went to therapy, did a lot in my life to prioritize myself before my work. And that was hard for me as somebody, I was at the kind of the height of my career, you know, but I realized that like, it's not worth it if you don't have a life outside of your career and your work. And it won't feel like you're at the height of your career if you're not taking care of the rest of your life. So I took a step back and 
ended up working, did my best to work less, but you know, with breaking news and just constantly feeling like, and thank God I have a partner, David, who understands we'll go to dinner and I'll get a phone call from a source and I got to take it, you know, or a victim or something that's happened a billion times. And it's, it was hard not being on my own timeline because I, I felt like I was constantly tethered to this spider webbing <laughs> series of events. And it was constantly just pulling me in. And yeah, balance has been tough, but just making that priority for myself, for my mental space and really considering if I'm not in the best mental space, I can't do my work in the best way that I can. I can't stand up for these victims. I can't do the work that's important because it's a lot of mental challenges. I mean, constantly thinking, am I the crazy one or is everybody like everybody else went along with this guy, especially there in 2021, where just a lot of people really believed Alex and the Murdoch family, that Alex was a good person and that he was being victimized in all of this. And it was hard to uh, a lot of times feel like one of the only voices out there that were like, no, something's really wrong with this guy. The voices in the media, locally, everyone knew that everyone was suspicious of Alex <laughs> in some degree. I think that that's a thing that the national media really gets wrong. They act like he was this super stand-up lawyer, but we all knew that like, I mean, it, he was not sketchy was the word that people said to me over and over again. And they said, like, your parent, if you live in Hampton, your parents are going to warn you about the Murdoch family. That's just the way that it is. And you're going to keep quiet about the Murdoch family because that's the way that it is here. I'm just glad that in looking back, I think about this all the time that I did make that big transition in my life. And I think a lot of women especially struggle with always feeling like we have to do more and always feeling like we have to work harder and always feeling like if we're not putting in the extra two and a half miles and everybody else, then we're just going to get left behind. And I just kind of realized that running that work, work, work all the time is not necessarily the formula for success. You really need to take breaks. So I've been taking a lot of them recently. Well, I'm pleased to hear that because running, you know, as I do, a, this is a weekly podcast and the production schedule, you know, when you're doing interviews and when you're formulating narratives about very complicated cases, it, it takes a lot out of you. And trying to get that balance is not easy, but particularly when there's still news and you're the one breaking it. And I think that's why I give you credit throughout my analysis. I always mention you. you and for my listeners to please listen to your podcast because you were uncovering so much of it at the time that people now take for granted. But some of this could have stayed in the shadows had it not have been for you and the team. And so when I'm going through and analysing, I look at many, many different sources, but I always go to what you uncover first of all. And I found so many, I mean, it's just so many bizarre things that have gone on here. And I think that local intel, as you talk about, the sort of unwritten rule, don't challenge. You just have to toe the line and go along with it. The old boys network, which is local to you, but also the patriarchy plays a very clear role here. And, you know, I'm kind of curious from your perspective, given that you have observed Murdoch in the wild, as I call it, you were at the trial, you've uncovered so much about his behavior from so many different sources. What is your impression of him? What have you formed in terms of your impression of him? And my second question is also part of that is, do you believe that he was a drug addict as he claimed after September the 4th? Well, that was one of my questions for you. I was very interested in um, your background and how you, you thought. Um, I don't have the, you have a psychology background, correct? I do, forensic and legal psychology. Yes, I don't have that. Did, studied a little bit of sociology in college, but it was mostly journalism. But I've always been very interested in like the study of people and and with crime, how personalities intertwine with that. And I've been trying to figure out Alex Murdoch for four years now. And my conclusion, I mean, I think the best one word is just a narcissist. I don't have a 
again, don't have the background to say that, but everything that man does is calculated and every single move that he does is not only calculated, but it is done to benefit him and no one else. And Alex comes before everybody else in his life and everything. And like you said, I also was horrified by the amount of people that could really believe that he could kill Maggie, but just couldn't believe that he could kill Paul. And I think that says so much about the patriarchy in our society and how we just dismiss domestic violence and abusive relationships as kind of a normal thing. Like, oh, men kill their wives all the time. Well, that's not normal. And as we were constantly kind of looking for his motive behind all of this, a lot of people were wanting a clear cut. Maggie wanted to get a divorce. And that's why he did this. As if that is a logical reason to commit murder of your wife and son, because you're, I know that that's a motive that happens all the time, but it, it just blows my mind that so many people are like, well, that makes sense because get a divorce. That's not the worst thing in the world. Murdering somebody is the worst thing in the world. And why do you resort to that? That doesn't make, that should not make sense to anybody. And I I think he's cold. I think he's calculated. I think he is incredibly self-centered and manipulative is the best word I feel like I can describe Alex And I listened to hours and hours of his phone calls with his family. And that was about a year ago when we got a majority, a bulk of those phone calls. And that put me in a very dark place listening to those phone calls. I don't know what it was exactly. It was the way that he was clearly manipulating his family. And he had a formula when he was making these phone calls of like sucking up to them at the beginning pretending to care about their lives. And then at the end, he would do an ask. (laughs) He would ask for canteen money or ask for a family member to run an errand for him and do a favor or make a phone call for him. Like every single thing that he did was calculated. And another huge conclusion that I found listening to those jailhouse phone calls was that Alex never seemed concerned about the murders of his wife and son. Like he was never concerned for Buster's safety. He never expressed any anger about why had, and this is in the time where he was not charged. He was in jail for the financial crimes, but he was not charged for the murders. And gosh, that was just, that was my big moment of like, I think he really did this listening to all of hours and hours of phone calls. And he never, ever really mentioned a concern for why isn't this case solved? What is going on? And did not seem to miss him at all. And second, I uh, I think he was a drug user, but I don't think, I think, again, he realized that a lot of people can be manipulated when you say that you're a drug addict. And I think he realized that he could get sympathy from saying that he's a drug addict. So I think he greatly exaggerated his drug addiction. And I think it's not, it was really unfortunate how he blamed his addiction on everything that was going on in his life when there's lots of people in the United States, especially were still in the middle of an opioid epidemic. And the There's lots of people who are addicted to drugs and they don't murder their wife and son and they don't steal millions of dollars from their clients and they don't do all of these things. I think he's just an evil person and his drug addiction might have made his problems worse or his slight drug addiction. I don't think it was nearly as bad as he claims, but and I know that it wasn't. He had some absurd number for what he was spending on drugs in a week and that did not line up. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly. 
allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. Yeah. I didn't buy it at all. But just to go back to answer your, your first question, just about separation and coercive control and domestic violence, it's, it's when we see about 76% of murders where men kill women because the woman says, I don't want to be with you anymore. And they have this mindset, if I can't have you, no one can. And it really does go to male entitlement and ownership and possession of I own you you are only alive because I allow you to be. And if I can't have you, no one will. You are my possession and I will kill you. And it's a form of taking control. And unfortunately, it's very prevalent that very fragile male ego where they're rejected and they cannot deal with that rejection. And when you have psychopathy, which we know Going back to 1993, when Dr. Hare looked at domestic violence perpetrators and Dr. Hare created the psychopathy checklist, he found that about 25% of them, domestic violence perpetrators, were psychopaths. But I estimate it's far more than that. In my work, because I've analysed thousands of domestic violence murders, and on the face of it, that's what this looks like. Family annihilation, as Creighton Waters said. But it's actually more complicated than that because... He, I believe, saw Maggie and Paul as extensions of him, but you have the added matters relating to all the financial issues of exposure of not just one investigation, but three. And those three investigations, Mark Tinsley being a key person who was going to hold him accountable. And he's bloody brilliant, by the way, and we'll come on to Mark Tinsley but he made it very clear he wasn't going to go away on behalf of the Beach family and that they may be friends, but he was not going away and that he would sue him and he would sue Maggie and Paul if he tried to fix anything regarding the jury or the trial. So Mark was very key in making it known to him that accountability and exposure was coming. Then, of course, you had um, the PMPD forensic accounting and inquiry about the missing legal fees. And then you had the grand jury looking at him. Those three things were not going away. And for him to try and deal with one of them, he probably thought that that was possible. But two, three, all of Paul's doing effectively, for him, he was trying to close down everything and trying to figure it all out, as he would say. But I believe that last confrontation the one that he had with um, Jeannie Seconder, 
with everything else that sat behind it, with Mallory Beach and that case just coming up, I believe that it was much more about ensuring that he was never exposed because he is somebody who puts himself as centre in everything. That his needs, exactly as you said, Mandy, his needs, everything about him has to be centred. And he had to protect, he would call it the Murdoch name and being a Murdoch and by virtue of that, Maggie and Buster, but Maggie and Paul were the extension of it. They took a bullet for the team because he had to stop everything coming out to protect the Murdoch name. You know, it's a it's a very on point phrase, taking a bullet for the team, because I believe he was that clinical in the execution of it that he just saw it as it was just a necessary thing to do. And he had obviously been thinking about it for some time, but you can never plan the perfect murder. Why I believe that is because even when I listened to the 911 call, when he called it in, the only thing I heard genuine emotion about was his indignation and anger that the call handler dared to say that A, she didn't know him, but B, did he live in a house or a mobile home? That's the only thing he was indignant and angry about. That was genuine emotion, which was so out of place given that his wife and son had their heads blown off, literally feet away from him when he's making that call. And that's what matters to him. That's what really bothered him. And that tells me it's leakage about what he values. And he values being centred in everything, having his needs met. Everybody is there to be dominated and manipulated. And what you describe in those calls is exactly how and what I see and hear When psychopaths manipulate people, they can dress it up in lots of ways so that the person doesn't even know they're being manipulated. They have no idea. Well, that tells you when someone is a very good manipulator, because that's the art of it, right? That you have no idea that you are being manipulated. And looking at a lot of his behavior through the lens of people know him, who know him the best, his ability to lie so easily, he can look you in the eye and he can persuade you. And people believed him. They believed everything he said. Even when he's giving evidence at the trial, he was very persuasive and plausible. But the pathological lying, the manipulation, the charm, and charm is a manipulator, the lack of remorse. You don't hear anything about how horrific it was that Maggie and Paul were murdered. It was all about the, how it impacted him effectively and the aftershock of all of that. But that was his intention. He wanted the boat case to go away. He wanted it all to go away. And it was all starting to go away because he knew he would get empathy. And that's the thing, it's called empathy, not sympathy. So there's a lot of traits there around lack of empathy and lack of responsibility taking, impulsivity, you know, shallow effect, these shallow emotions, like when he's describing Maggie to Sled and on the interviews, which I've taken apart, there's no genuine compassion or care or love for Maggie, he describes her as a function, as somebody who did things for him and the family in the most bizarre clinical ways that he describes her as this person who just serves him and the family. So there were lots of leaks and tells for me just about how manipulative he was. This is somebody who is a grade A manipulator and has been very successful at it. Also, because people don't and didn't challenge him. They just accepted his word as a lawyer that you expect somebody to have a, you know, a sense of integrity and they're doing the right thing. But as you've uncovered in so many cases, no one was off limits. Even Hakeem Pinkney, he wasn't off limits, even though that family had suffered so much and he added to their suffering. And what an abomination of an individual. But I don't believe that he had a drug addiction issue. And the reason being is that oftentimes when men are caught doing something, whether it's sexual harassment cases or whatever it might be, they claim that they need therapy. They need therapy for sex addiction or here, he's a drug addict. And I just believe it's another empathy tactic and manipulator to be able to say, well, I've gone into rehab, I've been treated, therefore it's that that was the problem, not me. So they can separate the two things and still not take any responsibility for what they've done. It insulates them in some way. Off they go to rehab or whatever therapy they're going on. But I don't believe if he was taking that that amount of pills that he 
disclose that he would be able to do the things that he has done. And after the shooting, the so-called um, homicide, as he called it, shooting. I mean, what a faux narrative that was of this supposed shooter who is a real nice guy, acted like. I've never heard someone describe a shooter, someone who's tried to kill them as a real nice guy. I mean, there were just so many tells and red flags for me when I analyse, and I've been involved with thousands of cases, that you know it's a faux narrative, but knowing that you still have to prove it. He said so many things in the ambulance and that footage where he later claims he's withdrawing from drugs and coming down. Well, he was eloquent and he was articulate and he could speak to what happened. So I just believe that this is just another way to try and escape responsibility taking. And it was something that was concocted that was quite strategic for him to go off into rehab and to try and get some more empathy. And it was all the drugs that did it. And it wasn't me. Yeah. And really, when you think about it, I mean, the two major events of 2021, the murders of Maggie and Paul, and then Alex's roadside shooting incident, they were just massive manipulation tactics. It was all, both of those events were, I believe, concocted completely around, like you said, Alex believing that he can get out of things and Alex believing that the world will take him at his word. And I'm sure you notice this, like he's baffled whenever anybody questions him whatsoever. And he he's not good at that. He's not good at really faking basic human emotions. I noticed that over and over again in the trial and in the 911 call on the day of the double homicide, a normal person would be feeling incredibly fearful if they stumbled across their wife and son on their very secluded land and very dark at night. You would think that he would have at least been able to think about like, oh, I should be scared I'm terrified, say something like that, but he didn't. He just got really sloppy with faking human emotions. And I think that that's why that was a big reason why he got ultimately caught and convicted. Absolutely. It's unbelievable that both of those events, I don't know if a jury would have been able to believe that Alex did it without the roadside shooting event. That was so important because it just showed the absurd tactics this man would take to get out of things. And it was so essential to understanding Alex Murdoch and the just insane frame of mind that he was in at the time that he believed that faking a roadside shooting would get him out of all of these other things. And I mean, the other thing that you really had to believe in the, the thing that I just kept holding on to when everybody during the trial was saying, he's going to walk, he's going to walk, was you would have to believe that all of these other events were coincidences, right? If Alex didn't do it. Like you would have to believe that the PMPED confrontation that day just happened to happen uh, on the same day that his wife and kid were murdered and that the beach case was really heating up and there was a lot of increasing pressure that he had to face later that week. You would just have to believe a a lot of different things were a complete coincidence if you believe that Alex didn't do this. And I think that that's ultimately what what did him in. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, it was so compelling, the timeline evidence. And for me, I'm a big timeline person. You know, when you look at everything and I call it the, the macro timeline, going back to the Murdoch family, 1920s onwards, but also the micro timeline of what was going on on that day and that night. And I think that's where SLED, you know, SLED's Peter Radovsky did a brilliant job. You know, I am a data geek. I am someone who spent a lot of time doing that role in the police of piecing things together and adding in the behavior. And it was just so compelling. And the fact that he lied about being there, the video evidence that caught him out. And I do agree, the lack of certain emotions, the, the crying, but there being no tears. I mean, it's a big tell. There's a lot of noise, but there's no tears. There's no actual water coming out the tear ducts and the lack of fear, as you say. It, I always look at not just what's present, what's absent. Of course someone would be fearful and terrified. Your wife and your son are killed in an isolated 
location and he was very quick to frame it as to what it was. But it's the absence. At no point was he, I've got to speak to Buster. I've got to speak to Buster. In fact, he was so intent on speaking to Rogan Gibson. I was immediately, who's Rogan Gibson? Who is this guy? And of course, he's key. Alec Murdoch has to get to him to control him. And it's all about what's absent when you're listening to 911 calls, when you're watching the body-worn camera, when you're watching somebody give evidence at the trial. But there were just so many pieces of data and evidence and the timeline. And actually, it was just not possible for it to be anybody else. You know, that's how compelling the circumstantial case was. And people forget about that. If it's not him, who else is it that has all that opportunity and motive and means? And of course, August the 11th was key as well. I think that sled interview, because none of them had really been interviews, just sitting in a car chatting to him. And on the third interview, you get a one minute, 26 seconds where he is actually being interrogated, where right at the end, he's finally being asked the questions and he didn't like it one bit. He had to try and then control the narrative. He was so shocked that they believed him to be the prime suspect. And I think that that's when he knew more drastic measures were required. What a thing to then concoct, you know, a a shooting and to stage it, because they're both staged crimes, right? As Maggie and Paul, that's a staged, what we would call a staged homicide. And, you know, the question is, on September the 4th, was it a staged suicide or was it a staged homicide? And I believe it was actually about staging a homicide to make it look like Eddie Curtis Smith was the shooter of Maggie and Paul. And now he was coming after him because he realised that's what was abs- that's what he needed, but it's also what was absent. If he wanted to prove this vigilante-type case that he was setting up, he needed someone now to come after him because he probably heard intelligence murmurings in the community about what was also missing. And I believe that that's a decision that he took. When we think about, you know, was there really an 8 to 10 or $12 million dollar life insurance. I mean, I was curious about that because you would expect someone to know, right, what their life insurance policy was. And he was just, again, very vague about it and surprised he's asked that question. And you mentioned that Mark Tinsley said that he didn't believe it even existed. Has it ever been corroborated that you know of, Mandy, that it existed? No. And I think that that is a good point. And If Eddie's case does go to trial, which I hope that it does, I hope that we get answers on a lot of that because a lot of Eddie's charges were downright concerning because when you read the arrest warrants, it relied heavily, heavily, heavily on Alex Murnock and what he told police. And now that he has been a judge's ruled, he's, I think he said, the least credible person you could imagine, something along those lines. A lot of the case against Eddie kind of falls apart. And I mean, he's the only one that hap- that knows what happened that day on the side of the road. I don't believe Alex was actually shot. Again, to believe that if somebody took a gun and was their job was to shoot Alex in the head. What kind of universe <laughs> would this be if that one bullet happened to ricochet in the way that they said that it would? And I think they said it like ricocheted off his skull. It, it would be nearly impossible. I know that weird things happen all the time, but I just do not believe it. I think that he was either grazed by a bullet. I think that either the bullet went to the ground it ricocheted off of the ground and grazed his head, or I could also see him just taking a rock and faking a wound there that way. But that is something that I would love to see come out in the next few months is all the evidence related to that. Because from the very get-go, the sources on the ground were saying something is really wrong here. And I don't think that this is real. (laughs) I don't think Alex has actually been shot. I mean, the medical evidence should say one way or the other, but if it were the same shooter as Mazelle, it would be very unusual for on a isolated hunting lodge in the dark for a shooter to be so successful to kill Maggie and Paul in that way, who were younger 
and given the dogs being there and, and so on, but yet to be unsuccessful in a roadside environment where you have control over the environment, you've got an older, unfit, large male and to not be successful in shooting them. I mean, even that was just bizarre. So, you know, I have a lot of questions about that. Curtis Eddie Smith's role in terms of the money, the vast sums of money, he was writing all those checks to him across eight years, the money laundering, which I believe it to be, but also setting up that he's the drug dealer, you know, being able to give this explanation. But, you know, the money is a big issue. And I'm curious, what do you think happened to all of the money um, that Murdoch had from his clients that he had exploited and stolen money from, but also his own legal fees and exaggerated legal expenses, etc. Where do you think all, all the money has gone? Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I don't think that he spent it all. Um, I think that that would be nearly impossible. I believe that someone is helping him hide it or helped him hide it offshore somewhere or in other accounts. There's theories that it's buried in their different properties. There's things like that. I do not buy that he spent it all on drugs and all of that money disappeared. The Murdochs, the Murdochs were powerful and wealthy, especially for Hampton, but they did not live like mega millionaires. You know, they they weren't yachts and hundred thousand dollar cars, and they lived in fairly modest homes and from land given them to them and things like that. So I don't think that, uh, but I, I do believe that I think it's important for the prosecution to continue on to prosecute the financial crimes so we can find more out about who all was involved. And because I do not believe that just the few people who have been arrested in this were the only ones who knew what was going on and the only ones who helped him in this. I think that there are a lot more people. I agree. I always say, follow the money, follow the money, follow the money. And if he was sort of siphoning money off, giving it some to, you know, Curtis Eddie Smith over eight years, and he's a smart guy, Murdoch, he knew what he was doing, and this has been going on for a very long time, I believe that they have to follow the money trail and they will find a lot more just about his... I don't even want to use the word shady goings on because it's criminal in what he's doing. You know, and when people say gentlemen smugglers and all of this nonsense, it's to hide real criminality. This is organised crime. And that's as serious as it should be seen as organised crime. And you have murder as well, but exploiting the most vulnerable in our society, those who put their trust in him, which makes it even more heinous. And so a couple of my last questions for you. I'm curious to know from... Your point of view and being at the trial, what were your standout moments at the trial of what you learned or what, did anything surprise you or any of the witnesses that stood out to you? I actually was not there because of all of the online threats and harassment that I received and just technology. You can cover a trial. We figured out that it would be just a lot more easier and better to do my job from watching it. So we hired a camera person who was there every day, but man, it was still exhausting <laughs> getting up and covering that thing um, day in and day out. And um, as far as who stood out the most, I think the women, honestly, Blanca, the housekeeper, I think her testimony was extremely damning. Shelly Smith. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And that was just a very big moment culturally, I think, for Hampton. You could tell Shelly Smith was came from a culture of you don't talk about people like the Murdochs. You don't speak up against people like the Murdochs. Your livelihood depends on people like the Murdochs. So you keep your head down and you stay out of it. And you could just feel from her body language that she did not want to be there and she did not want to be in this position, but it, you could tell how much it hurt her and how much she didn't, she had to tell the truth. And ultimately that's what she did. And, but you could just tell how uncomfortable all of that made her and the position that it was in. It was just tragic. I just couldn't believe it. I was just blown away at the courage that that took for 
her to stand up and say the things that she said. And I think that her testimony really created a lot of momentum. And then, like you said, uh, the sled agent in the, that was towards the end with the timeline and that <laughs> name is slipping. It's been a while since I've Peter Rodowski. I'm still writing it, Mandy, which is why it's all top okay, of my yeah, mind. Yeah, that's so right. Yeah. that's right. Yeah. Special agent Peter Rodowski, who did the yeah, timeline. He, that was phenomenal because of the amount of people that were saying, oh my gosh, we're getting bits and pieces everywhere. And it's just really confusing. And how on earth is the jury supposed to put all of this together and make sense of everything that they've heard, especially the prosecution's case lasted weeks. When you have that much evidence and that much of a massive timeline, as you said, in a complicated timeline, and I thought that it was brilliant that they did that right at the end because, and it just really tied all the pieces together perfectly. And like you said, I think that that was the thing that made the jury say there's nothing else that could possibly make sense besides the fact that this man did it. And I I was very, as a citizen, a tax paying citizen of South Carolina, I was very proud of the work that the prosecution did and that SLED did. And ultimately, I mean, there was, of course, ups and downs throughout the trial as any trial, but I was, I knew it was a very complicated case. And the fact that they made the jury understand through all the complications and so easily the jury decided so quickly. And that was also pretty shocking. Yeah, they did a very good job. It is very hard when you have so much data, you have to present a clear narrative and not get lost in the weeds, as it were. And I think that's what Creighton Waters did very well. Um, and I agree with you about Shelley Smith. She cried a lot of the time. She was so conflicted about being there and being disloyal, but she knew she had to do the right thing. And it's just a reminder of how this is about real people and real lives. And, you know, it's very conflicting for some people when they've been working in someone's em employment and they've enjoyed working there and then they they feel like they're doing the dirty on them. But she felt she had to do the right thing. And I think, you know, with Jeannie Seconder as well, that key information about that confrontation, yes, there are issues with PMPD. For me, it's when did they really know? You know, I, I suspect it was earlier on, but the fact of the matter about that confrontation and what she said about Alec Murdoch and did she really know him, even though she'd known him since she was 16, you know, and a lot of people saying that he wasn't really a good lawyer. He was very good at understanding the emotional temperature of people and that he would blindside people and do unpredictable things. Well, for me, that all talked to what went on at Moselle, these unpredictable you know, and the most catastrophic thing he chose to do. Well, people talked to his character and I thought Creighton Waters brought that out very well because actually, you know, I'm not diagnosing him, but coercive controllers and, and psychopaths are very good at reading people's emotional temperatures, i.e. they know what they need and therefore they can manipulate people very easily without them knowing they're being manipulated. So I thought Mark Tinsley did a great job too, you know, and Marion... Uh, Maggie's sister. I know that's not easy, what she had to say, but saying things like Murdoch was really dead set on clearing Paul's name, not on finding the killers of Paul and Maggie. And that for me is a glaring red flag. So there, there were some, there's never really dramatic moments at trial, but I think there were some very significant moments at trial and Creighton Waters tied it all together very well at the end. But I do just want to mention quickly, you know, one thing that totally baffled me was the coroner, Richard Harvey, saying that he checked the bodies by putting his hands in their armpits. I have never heard something like that in my professional career of 27 years, Mandy, hearing a coroner saying that he was trying to establish time of death by putting his hands in the armpits of the victims. What is going on there? We have a major uh, coroner problem. <laughs> In the right. United States, uh, South Carolina in particular. I don't know how y'all do it, but here uh, you do not need, you only need a high school degree to be elected to be a coroner. No medical require, medical school requirement. There is no... No medical requirement? What? Nothing. Nothing. You might like go to a little coroner school 
for a credit. But a lot of coroners are just completely uneducated. And I've seen it over and over again. And it's a big problem because when it comes to cases that are borderline suicide or homicide, as I'm sure you've seen before, it's really important to have a coroner who knows what they're doing there. And we have medical examiners who do autopsies. Coroners don't do autopsies. But when you have a coroner ruling that an investigation is automatically a suicide, nobody else will really, a lot of times people don't really fight within the system to change that to a homicide because they want a closed case. They want a suicide. That's it. It's easy. And it's a problem how much and this is, you know, as a local journalist, something that has just been bothering me for years about a coroner problem. So I'm glad that you asked that because they have a lot of power. And they do. That was a perfect display for the world of what a problem it is. Armpits, that is your scientific what? And that doesn't make any sense. And it is 2023. How are you saying this? And I'm sure he's like, I don't know anything about the guy, but it's probably just what he was taught to do. And a lot of these people don't know any better, but the system should require a lot more education and background for somebody to be a coroner. And that's just something that I've seen over and over again. It's like, oh. Well, that's terrifying to me. I mean, coroners do wield great power in terms of investigations. And so that's just not acceptable I just did a double take. I couldn't quite believe what I was hearing. And there were there were many of those moments when I was listening to you talk about Judge Carmen Mullen, for example. I just couldn't, I can't get my head around how egregious it is that decisions have been taken and victims have been further victimised because of the decisions that have been taken. And I hope that there will be some accountability because that abuse of power is totally unacceptable. It really is just cannot be tolerated. And I hope that now the Murdoch, now he's been convicted and you've got the financial crimes upcoming, I hope that there is some accountability for others within the system because the people deserve it. The local people deserve better. And that's the bottom line here. It's about the people you serve. When I was in law enforcement, I was very very fully aware I serve the people of London. That's, and I always said I work for the victim. That's what I do here. And I'm very aware of that. You have to have accountability and you have to have trust and confidence. So I I hope there are things that are happening regarding some of these individuals who have not just enabled, but been a key part of terrible decisions that have really exploited vulnerable victims and their families even further. That's something that I think has made me a lot different from a lot of the reporters covering this and a lot of people following this case, I got so many questions of what are you going to do next um, now that everything's over? And that's like, it's not even close to being over. There's all sorts of people that need to be held accountable. And there's all sorts of things that are happening right now, investigations that are still ongoing and problems that we need to address. We can't all just move on. This is a system that created and enabled Alex Murdoch to be the monster that he is. And we have to do something about that system. We can't just move on and just hold Alex accountable while everybody else goes back to doing the same thing. In South Carolina, we're having a major reckoning moment of our faith in the justice system has kind of collapsed as far as the public having faith in their elected officials and believing that their elected officials are doing the right thing. That's something that keeps me up at night. It really bothers me. It, corruption is just something that has always, as a journalist, just gone straight to my core and made me angry. I really want to keep highlighting that. And that's why we've continued with the podcast and we've continued with all of our, with our mission and everything that we're doing. I would love to just go on an island somewhere and <laughs> not um, have to deal with any of this and not have to face the music. You know, I would love to just run away and not, but it's, it's important to follow through and following through in this case means accountability for people who aren't just Alex Murdoch. It's the people who enabled him. And I hope that we get there. Absolutely. Well, I'm cheering you on from 
crime analyst headquarters and all that I do. And thank you so much for your tireless and relentless work and for centering the victims and all that you do. And it's been a pleasure talking with you, Mandy, and I hope we meet in real life at some point. So thank you very much. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. And thank you for all of your compliments. And I've gotten lots of tweets of your listeners coming my way. So I appreciate that. Absolutely. Yeah. I would love to meet you someday. Absolutely. Well, we'll make that happen. So thank you. And my listeners go over and listen to Mandy's podcast, both the podcasts, actually Cup of Justice and True Sunlight, which was the Murdoch the Murdoch Murders podcast. So until next time, crime analysts, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instincts. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude. <laughs>